Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Morteza Hajizadeh from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I'm honored to be speaking with uh, Dr. Philip Ullman uh, about a wonderful book that he published with Stanford University Press. The book is called Why? The Philosophy Behind the Question. The book was originally written in French and it was translated into English by Adam Hawker. Uh, Philip is a research director at the Institute of History of Philosophy, Sciences and Technology in Paris. But I'll let him introduce himself uh, to us. Philip, welcome to New Books Network. Uh, hello. Thank you. Thank you very much for the invitation. Uh, before we start talking about this wonderful book, uh, I would appreciate it if you could introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us generally uh, how you became interested in philosophy and more importantly, how the idea of this book came to you? Okay, so uh, I am a philosopher of science uh, at the French uh, CNRS Center of, Center of Scientific Research and uh, University Paris 1, Sorbonne in, in Paris. Um, so I, my training was originally in mathematics and philosophy a very, a very long time ago, and then I turned to philosophy of science with some um, little explorations of other topics such as phenomenology, also a very long time ago. And I focused on the philosophy of biology, which uh, uh, is uh, has been, I guess, started by my dissertation topic, which was about uh, Kant's concept of organism um, that I addressed in the background of the uh, history of biology at the times and how this concept emerged emerged throughout uh, advances in, in embryology, comparative anatomy, or physiology at the times of Kant. So uh, then I remained with philosophy of biology, and I I uh, focused uh, more generally on the philosophy of evolutionary biology and of ecology. The, that there are two fields that are really very much connected. And um, so uh, this book is called Why, and it's a book, and we'll be talking about it, but it's uh, very, very generally about a book about reasons why, why, reasons why we act, reasons why the world is as it is, uh, and reason why we uh, believe in such and such uh, things and uh, so it's a very general philosophical exploration of what it is to be a reason and um, so what does the word why uh, mean in various contexts and um, so why was I uh, interested in writing this book actually uh, as an academic philosopher I have been working on various very specialized topic and so I published on the concept of biological function, uh, more generally the notions of natural selection and adaptation, the notion of organism in evolutionary biology, 
uh, on um, and also um, on the the notion of scientific explanation in general. And I defended a few uh, theses that I'll talk about later uh, about what is what is a correct scientific explanation. And um, actually, in philosophy, uh, like all other academic disciplines, people specialize, which which is a uh, unavoidable and in general good thing. And so uh, we are like philosophers of science and more generally of biology and sometimes more generally of a specific topic in biology, like immunology or uh, developmental theory. Um, but in philosophy, uh, concepts, notions, questions are very much related. So, uh, and if you talk, let's say, about um, what is an organism, you deal with the question what is actually what is an individual and what is an individual is also a que metaphysical question, uh, which connects to issues about um, what, what is very generally a thing? How do we recognize, recognize a thing in various moments in time, which connects to the question of time? And also uh, what it is to count things, which connects to issues in mathematics, actually, and the philosophy of mathematics. So with this example, you see that in general, uh, philosophical issues are very much related. And actually, when you read uh, sort of classic philosophers, thinking of, let's say, Aristotle or Kant, of course, the connections between those questions are very much uh, salient. And uh, since we are nowadays very much specializing, we don't, uh, maybe we can think of the connections, but we don't really focus on them and very rarely write about them. And so I wanted to, uh, once, uh, for once, I wanted to see how the, the, the ideas that I have been defending regarding, for example, biological functions and other ideas regarding, let's say, uh, explanations or mathematics were connected and would connect to some very general issues about language, about action, because actually when you, when you, when you try to make sense of a biological explanation of the hunting behavior of uh, sharks, well, hunting behavior, it's an action, and action is something we are dealing with all the time. We talk about our actions, we justify our actions with people. So the, the, the very tiny question of, let's say, the behavioral ecology models of hunting, actually, they might connect to philosophical issues with action in general and the justification of actions. So this book is about trying to sketch the big picture. It, re it relies on things that I have been acad academically doing for, actually, for many years now, so uh, and where things like claims that I try to defend uh, very strongly in various uh, academic papers, and it uh, it goes into uh, issues that are related to the claims that have been defending, and that are uh, let's say in other uh, disciplines like subdisciplines of philosophy, like metaphysics, like philosophy of language, like philosophy of history. So that's the that mm -hmm. so that's the, the the book and the project was really about reflecting of what I've been doing in philosophy and trying to uh, sort of uh, venture myself into the, the the big picture and try to 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 make sense of it at least for at least for me and hopefully for us, uh, readers. Great, thank you. It was a perfect explanation and uh, and I also really love the way you have kind of. Uh, 
planned the book. There are three parts, grammar, fusions, and limits. And each chapter, there are uh, nine chapters, and each chapter starts with a why question. And then we'll talk about some of the issues you discuss about animals and biology. And I can now see, I didn't know your background, but I can see why you decided to write about these issues in your book. So let, let's start with something uh, fairly broad. You, so in science, they use deductive method and for, to find scientific facts. Um, in the book, you talk about the first chapter of the book, you talk about some of the shortcomings related to this deductive uh, reasoning or deductive methods. And then the, you also go on to discuss that scientific explanations could also be causal. So I'm uh, interested to know more about these. Yeah, so actually, um, the, 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 there is uh, an ongoing discussions uh, in philosophy of science about what is an explanation. So, because uh, as philosophers of science, we are interested in the normative questions. Why is, for example, um, uh, an appeal to magic a bad explanation? And, uh, and also, we are interested in trying to account for the fact that the norms for explanation are historically changing. So what people would count as a correct explanation at the time of Aristotle is not at all uh, what we uh, see as a correct explanation. And, um, and, and this is uh, quite puzzling because actually uh, one could say, okay, but science you know, progresses, so uh, this was wrong and now we are okay. But in order to progress, science has to find explanations. So the science can change the contents of explanations, but how do you change the, the norms of explanations, actually? So, so the very general questions uh, philosophers ask are, ask are uh, is about what is an explanation? And then mm. uh, if you, for example, teach philosophy of science uh, in, in, in uh, undergrad classes, you'll start, in general, you'll talk about induction and the David Hume. So David Hume was the guy who um, uh, questioned the logical rela reliability of induction. What is induction? It's uh, starting from some cases and saying something general about all the similar cases. And, uh, and Hume very forcefully made a difference between two kinds of inferences, the deduction. So deduction is about um, you have a proposition and you derive something that is somehow already in the proposition. So, for example, uh, if you tell me uh, I'll be in uh, Barcelona next week, uh, I can tell you that the next Tuesday you'll be in Barcelona because it's part mm -hmm. of next week. So that this is a deduction. And uh, as philosophers say, the, the, the deduction is an inference that conserve the truth. So since as far as the, the first claim, the first proposition is true, the proposition that is deduced is also true. But of course, in induction, you don't have that. That's what you were saying. You don't have the, the problem of you don't have, sorry, this conservation of truth. For example, uh, if uh, you tell me like the classic examples, all swans are uh, mm. all swans are white. Uh, and uh, I infer, uh, well, the next one, the next swan I'll be seeing will be white, and actually it will, it might not, some, some swans are black, so it might be black. So the, the, the 
claim he, he, the, the, there is not this uh, warranty that uh, you will from the few swan you have seen uh, you infer to all swan so, so the proposition about a few swan can be true but the, the proposition about all the swan swans will not be true so uh, since Hume philosophers are quite um, suspicious about induction as an epistemic operation likely to robustly provide truths. That's why uh, when philosophers in the 60s focused really on the notion of scientific explanation, someone like Karl Hempel, who have been a very influential philosopher in the 50s, Austrian-born, but, but then, uh, uh, then exiled in America. Um, Karl Hempel was um, trying to understand explanations purely in deductive terms. So uh, he had a, and so I talk in the book about his view of explanation that has been very influential, even though it's now very much discussed and in general few people subscribe, but it really played a great role in this general thinking about explanation. So he says, what is an explanation? Actually, explaining is about, um, so it's a deduction, but because the only deductions are like sought conveying uh, epistemic operations, but um, what kind of deduction, so he says uh, explanations are the sort of inferences that tells you, that tell you that uh, the thing you want to explain uh, should have had to occur. And what does it mean? So if I want to explain, uh, let's say the motion of the moon, I start with uh, the fact that the moon is here and the moon or the general fact that the, the moon has such an orbit around planet Earth. And then what is an explanation? I, I, I subsume, I um, show that the motion of the moon derives from all the facts known about the universe and the laws. And that's, that's the key, the key idea and the laws of physics. So most preci more precisely, uh, explaining the motion of the moon is showing that uh, if I know the facts about the position of the, the Earth and the laws of gravitation, then the the trajectory of the moon can be deduced from that. And uh, so, so that's an explanation. And um, and if you want to test hypo, it's very, it's very general idea that also uh, implies that if you want to test a new hypothesis, you have to derive. So a new hypothesis, let's say about laws, uh, you have to derive uh, the facts facts that you know, and you have to show that those facts, let's say you have to show that those facts can be derived from the laws of nature in the same deductive way. So um, they call that the deductive nomological model of explanation, deductive because you have deductions of facts from already known facts and laws, and nomological, because laws nomological means, means there are laws. Laws plays a very important role in this model. And um, so that so that was a way people could, uh, let's say, show that uh, scientific explanations are perfectly ra rational uh, and avoid at the same time to make them rely on induction because induction is uh, quite um, quite uh, unreliable. Uh, mm -hmm. And why causation here? So uh, induction has been is really connected to causation. What it is to say that something causes something else? Uh, Hume says it's ascribing to something A the power to produce something B. And how do you do that? 
often you you say you make inductions. So you say you see, for example, uh, you eat bread, and so you have eaten lots of bread, and you ascribe to bread the power of um, nourish you, okay, and um, feed you. And so the next piece of bread you see, because it's bread also, you'll say, well, this has the power of, fi- of feeding me. Don't you? So you ascribe causal mm-hmm. power on the basis of induction. Now, if you are uh, quite suspicious about induction, you might be very suspicious about the very idea of causation. And that's something you find in philosophy of science very, uh, very often. And so that's also why Hempel uh, would say, OK, there, there might be causation in science, but it's not the core of explanation. If some laws are causal laws, then they play a role in explanation. But they play a role because they are laws, not because they are causal laws. And so that's the picture of explanation, let's say, in the 80s. And so turning to the question, why causation in explanation? A lot of philosophers then questioned this view of Hempel and actually said, finally said, no, um, this this sort of uh, deductive nomological view of explanation, it's, it's not... There is a problem because uh, it's only logical and very generally it doesn't make the difference between explaining something and justifying a belief or making a prediction. So um, now taking an example that is very classical, uh, that is due to Wesley Salmon. Suppose you have a flag somewhere, you know, and mm-hmm. with a shadow, the, the flag has a shadow and you want to explain the shadow of the flag and it's perfectly uh, if you are Hempel, the explanation is, is um, you know the fact of the the, the size of the of the um, flagpole, you know the position of the sun, and you know the laws of um, optics and trigonometry. And from the fact of the from from the side of the flagpole, you deduce the size of the shadow. So that's an explanation. And someone says, okay, but you can do the same thing the, the other way around. You can deduce also, if you know the size of the shadow, you can perfectly well deduce the size of the flagpole. But nobody would call that an explanation because it doesn't make any sense to say that the shadow of the flagpole, the flag flagpole explains the size of the flagpole. Um, so there is something, explanation should be asymmetric, asymmetrical. Mm. And so uh, if you explain A on the basis of B, in general, you shouldn't be allowed to explain B on the basis of A, even though you can justify your belief that uh, A on the basis of, of B. What I mean by justifying, and here it's another sense of the, 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 the question why, is that if someone asks me, um, what, how do you know, let's say, that the, 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 the size of the flagpole or, or for example, the, the, the perimeter of the Earth is such and such, and I would say, well, because uh, I know it, because I know the, the shadow here, and sorry, I, uh, yes, I know the size of the shadow, and I know the laws of optics and trigonometry. And it's a perfect justification, but it's not an explanation. And Solomon would go uh, saying, what makes an explanation explanatory is um, a reference to causation. Why is the explanation of the shadow of the flagpole correct? It's because actually the flagpole causes the shadow. And that, whereas the shadow doesn't cause the flagpole. So explanation has to go somehow with causation. And that's why many explanations are causal. And if you look at science nowadays, often what do scientists uh, try to do? 
um, often well, they make models, and so often they they make models, let's say, of the data. So, for example, you have mm-hmm. uh, let's say the the um, the various positions of the moon, and uh, so you infer a trajectory of the moon, and then you want to make a model of uh, why it is like that, what, what produces this trajectory. So you want to make a causal model, actually. And in your causal model, you'll enter the position of the Earth, the size of the moon, the size of the Earth, their masses, the laws of gravitation. And then uh, you, you, this um, mechanism in general, instantiating the laws of gravity and also laws of physics will uh, explain the motion of the moon. So um, in, in, sci- in science papers in general, those models that explain are called mechanical models. So because they display some causal mechanisms yielding the phenomena you want to infer or yielding the trajectory you want to explain. And, uh, so, so within science talk, the, the, this little world mechanism that you see all over the place in scientific papers um, implements the notion of causation that is that is crucial in uh, explanations. And uh, as uh, Solomon and others have uh, uh, ha- ha- have um, uh, said, mm-hmm. is it clear? Uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, the the structure explanation, it's in science. How does that work? Yeah. yeah so so actually, one of my uh, claims. And some philosophers absolutely disagree, but others agree, uh, <laughs> is that not all explanations are like these causal explanations, yeah. uh, um, uh, unraveling of mechanisms. And I take it that in many cases, uh, some explanations are such that the, some myth- mathematical properties are playing an explanatory role. And what that does it mean in my example of, um, the motion of the moon, it's a, so, uh, it's a causal explanation that the mathematics are, let's say, describing the laws of gravitation. So the relation between the masses and the inverse square of distance, that's the expression of the law of gravitation. But the mathematics is the expression of, let's say, the causal action of, uh, gravitation. Whereas in other explanations, uh, what I am, um, arguing is that mathematics are themselves the, the explanatory, they are not describing mm-hmm. a causal action. And so an example would be um, from graph theory. And actually, uh, something that I have been trying to argue for years is that uh, graph theory is the science of networks. And okay, so in current science, you have networks all over the place in, gen- in genomics, like in, in gene regulatory networks. In ecology, you have trophic networks, networks of all kinds. In brain science, you have also lots of networks of very different kinds. And networks uh, have properties that one calls topological properties that are studied by graph theory. And uh, my point is that in some cases, uh, the, 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 the structure, so the topology of the network, plays an explanatory role. So for example, and that's my favorite example, it's, uh, I'll try to, to convey it by words. It's very, it's easier when you, when you, it's topology, so it's easier with uh, images. But anyway, so if you picture yourself uh, a network of predatory interactions, so um, species prey on other species, some species are eaten by other species. So a network is a set of 
points, they call, they call dots, uh, they call it nodes, and that can be related to other nodes by uh, lines, they call, um, they call them edges. And so a traffic network is a, a, a graph that represents all the predatory relations of a species in an ecosystem. So we can have like thousands of species, and if a species eats, so species are the nodes of the network, edges mm -hmm. are the relations, so there is an edge between two nodes, if and only if one of the, the species preys on the other. And so you can, uh, you, you can, um, build like this. When you know the ecosystem, you can build the perfect network of the ecosystem. And then the point is that, uh, most of those networks are of a very general kind, which is called, well, almost, uh, scale-free networks. It's, in, in reality, it's a bit more complicated, but that's the general idea. What is a scale-free network? Think of, for example, um, uh, airlines, air traffic, airlines, uh, companies. And so they have, uh, you know, flights from various cities and um, not all cities are connected. And in general, you have very large hubs. So, for example, if you, for, I don't remember, but may, let, let's imagine for uh, United, United Airlines, uh, mm -hmm. have a hub in St. Louis. And actually, lots of the flights would go through St. Louis. So if you picture the graph of, you know, uh, um, uh, flights, you'll have a very large hub in St. Louis, which is connected to many other cities. And lots of cities are actually connected to very few cities. So in, in ecology, it's a, a traffic network, so it's the same in general. So, this. It's that many species are very poorly connected and some species are very highly connected to many other species. And this kind of network is called a scale-free network. Um, and to put, to put it bluntly, let's say you have lots, let's say, uh, well, one or two, uh, about one or two species, like around 10 species that are very, very much connected to 200 of uh, other species. And uh, hundreds of species that that are a bit less connected, so let's say they are connected to um, yeah much less species, and then thousands of species that are even much less connected, and then like tens of thousands of species that are just very poorly connected to one or two. So uh, if you see this, if you have this kind of networks, then let's suppose one species random one take you pick up randomly one species and it gets extinct. If you do this. The chances that these species will be very poor, very highly connected to other species are very, very low because actually most of the species are very poorly connected. So if one species go extinct, it will change nothing about the behavior, the behavior of the network. Um, except if, you know, you, you, you target the species that is really very much connected, but chances that some of those species is targeted are very low by definition. Mathematically, because just you look at the proportions of the highly connected species in the network. And so in this kind of, it's a sort of toy example. I mean, in general, it's much more complicated, but that's really the general idea. So here is the topology of the network, which entails the fact that very few, if that if you pick up randomly one species, it will be almost certainly very poorly connected, which entails the fact that, uh, the, the, the network is random to uh, sorry, is uh, immune to random species extinctions, which entails the fact that 
the 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 ecosystem is somehow robust. Some species can go, other species can appear, but you know that it will sort of uh, remain remain stable. So that's an example of an explanation where actually the the the, the nat- nature of all the causal processes that which which who eats whom, who is eaten by whom, it doesn't really count in the explanation. You can you know just switch the edges in your network, provided that it still has this structure of scale-free network, it will be robust. So um, that, that's, what, that's what I call a topological explanation, and topology is a branch of mathematics. And uh, in mathematics, you have the different kind of structure. You have algebraic structure, you have a, a structure in uh, spaces of mathematical functions, and uh, the general claim is that those structures are um, in some explanation, they, 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 those structures uh, play an explanatory role. They are not only a description of the causal processes; they are, as such, explanatory. If you want to, to if you ask me what does account in my example the robustness of an ecosystem, I will answer: it's the scale-free nature of the networks. And this is a mathematical fact; it's not a causal process. So. Um, this is a, a kind of reason why things are as they are. That is mathematical, and it's a, it's a mathematical structure, namely here a topological structure, and not a causal fact. I, I don't know if it's clear, but that's that's the, the 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 claim. So the claim is really about the fact that explanations, most of them, okay, they are causal. Some of them are what they call structural. Other philosophers say non-causal, distinctively mathematical. Actually, there is there are several philosophers who. Who, who, who defend the same idea? My sort of uh, my own uh, argument uh, is really centered on this graph theory and topology case. But yeah, that's the idea. Mm. Well, if it becomes completely clear, I guess it ceases to be philosophy. So the part of it is just <laughs> to raise these questions. <laughs> uh, let's talk about the second chapter, and I really love the title of that chapter, which was "Why, why did Mickey Mouse open the fridge?" And I must say that I really love the titles of all of them, but this one was really interesting <laughs> to me. Uh, and I guess here it's where you talk about the reasons behind people's um, actions, if they are directed by desires or beliefs, and how do we distinguish between, again, what, uh, your book you talk about distinguish between a, a reason to do something and a good reason to act or do something. So I would appreciate if you could talk about this uh, part of the book. Yeah, so yeah, in the, in the, in the book in general, yeah, I tried to start each chapter by, by, uh, like focus on one sort of quite ordinary question and, uh, and in order to show the various, uh, ways, uh, the word why can mean something for us. And, um, uh, so, uh, th- this chapter is really about reasons why we act or why I act the way we do. Uh, and, uh, so it's about how do we make sense of actions and behaviors? And, um, the, the, the why did Mickey Mouse open the fridge? Um, it's, uh, I guess it's quite, for me, it's a quite, uh, illustrative example of the reasons for action. So, uh, the question, and even a kid can, will ascribe to, to Mickey Mouse a desire, which is like he wants to, uh, drink orange juice, he's thirsty, and also a belief that, I mean, 
oranges is in the fridge. It's not under the bed. So, uh, and, and, and also if I use this question also to, to, um, highlight the fact that this ability of, uh, of, um, identifying reasons for actions, ascribing desires and beliefs for, to, to, to the others is really something that arises very early in life. Actually, kids do it. It's in cartoon. And also, uh, it illustrates the fact that we can even ascribe desires and beliefs to animals. And so, uh, maybe later in time, adults will stop ascribing desires to animals and, uh, and, uh, or at least to like different animals. Let's not talk about, uh, like uh, uh, great apes, uh, and restrain the desires and beliefs to humans. But but still, this is a very uh, deeply entrenched capacity uh, that we have to uh, to make sense of actions of all the others. And uh, so desire and beliefs, they are a, a reason uh, why we act and why I act in such a way. Um, Lots of complications there, and I'm really not going through in the book. Uh, even in the book, I don't go through all the questions philosophers of action and efficient ask about what exactly is a reason. I, it suffices suffices me to say that um, the 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 action here, the sorry, the reason here has to do with desires, intentions, goals, and beliefs. The proper way this is articulated. There are lots of philosophical accounts. Uh, that are uh, in competition about that, and I'm quite neutral here. Uh, but the point, and it's related to a question, uh, what's important here is uh, that uh, a reason is not necessarily a good reason. So I remember here in, in France, we had a sort of uh, public debate. Uh, a minister said, you know, about uh, explaining terrorism and uh, Oh, and the minister said, yeah, but there's also sociologists, if they explain terrorism, actually, they, they justify terrorism. And, uh, and that's just, uh, an, an absolute nonsense, actually. I mean, you, if you explain what people do, actually, you are trying to find out the reasons why they act the way they do. But justifying what they do is trying to show those reasons are good reasons. And it's different. So why is it different? Um we are, uh, let's say, when we act, we act uh, for reasons. Actually, that's the difference, the difference between an action and, let's say, a sort of, uh, sort of automatic motion. I mean, sneezing, I don't sneeze for a reason. I mean, it's, you have, like, uh, biological processes going on, but I, I'm not saying I will sneeze in order to uh, something. So actions are for a reason. We formulate the reasons, uh, while there is also a debate here because psychoanalysts would say some reasons are unconscious, but actually those unconscious reasons, they work the same way. They are reasons why we act. They are desires. They make us uh, strive towards something on the basis that we have certain beliefs about the world, which make some action a mean to other action. We may be wrong about that too, sorry, a mean to a specific goal, and we may be wrong about this belief, but we act on this basis. And so uh, there is here a kind of rationality, which is once we have this belief about the world, once we have this desire, what we'll do will somehow follow from that. 
and it's quite rational. And uh, that's why, in general, when we have found out, think of a trial, for example, the motives of someone, the, the, the desires she has, and uh, what she thought about how the world is, which makes this goal attainable by this means, uh, then we think we have explained what uh, the, the the behavior, the action, what she has done. But of course, we have we have not judged it. Is it good? Is it bad? That's something else. Uh, because actually, the desires themselves can be bad. So uh, explaining, uh, finding the reason is finding the desires and the beliefs that are in the basis of an action. It doesn't tell you anything about the moral value of the of the belief. And uh, when I say this is a good reason, uh, this is about the moral value of the belief. And um, so the, this hinges about uh, hinges upon the difference between two kinds of rationality. The first one, sometimes people call that instrumental rationality. It's about being coherent between my desires, the means, uh, the goals that I desire to achieve, and the means that I use in order to uh, pursue uh, this goal, those goals based on what I know about the world and I may be very wrong about the world I may have very wrong informations and uh, so I can pick up let's say very bizarre means to uh, to, 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 to achieve uh, my uh, desired results but still I'm rational because those bizarre means are uh, let's say uh, uh, the means that make sense for me based on my beliefs. So if, if you want an example, think of someone who has been raised in the, uh, in, in the, in the idea or the belief that, uh, rain is somehow, rain is, uh, a mortal threat and rain kills you. And this guy, if it's raining, uh, he, uh, he will, for example, if he's training for one month, he'll never leave his apartment during one month. And someone could say that's irrational. But given what he knows about the rain, it's wrong, but it's sorry, what he believes about the rain and his goal, which is like to stay alive, it's perfectly rational. So this is instrumental rationality. It's not about the value of your desires or the accuracy of your beliefs. And uh, there is another kind of reason uh, that some, some, for example, uh, can't call the practical reason, which is about the value of uh, the, the, the goals, the desires, and the moral justification for that. Uh, but in order to, ex to explain why people act as they do, or to explain why I'm acting as I do, I guess instrumental rationality is enough ethics or morality uh, comes to play uh, when you look at some uh, a more uh, re a richer meaning of rationality, rationality that concerns the desires or the the goals yeah, and, and evaluates them. So uh, uh, is, you is actually, it clear? Yeah, you actually answered my other question as well about this. Uh, but I'm keen to talk about you said that you had this background in biology, and I'm uh, keen to talk about your, I think it's a <coughs> third chapter. Uh, why did, no, sorry, it's uh, a fourth chapter. Um, that's where you talk about other living beings. Yeah. If, uh, and I guess it's sort of very relevant to previous chapter where you talk about humans, why they do actions. 
In this chapter, you talk about other living, being, other living beings except humans. And the question is raised if they have a purpose in life. And uh, how can we sort of resort to the question of purpose? And then you also bring, bring up the issue of function in non-human beings to answer this question. And where does the Darwinian biology help us uh, in answering the questions of purpose in, in non-human living beings? Yeah, so uh, actually the, the very general uh, question here is about there is something um, specific to, to biology, which is it's very hard to uh, explain biological facts let's say, without referring to uh, purposive statements of some kind. So, for example, um, I can say uh, that... Uh, uh, Let's um, sorry. Uh, octop- octopuses are um, they uh, or uh, chameleons? They change color in order to uh, mm-hmm. escape predators. Okay, so this is clearly purposive. Uh, and the question philosophers have been asking uh, since the times of even Descartes is uh, okay, but what? Is, does it make sense? Are we allowed to do this, provided that uh, since what we usually call the scientific revolution in the 17th century, uh, the, the purpose stopped being part of the explanatory toolkit of scientists. So uh, Aristotle, in contrast, would be perfectly happy with ascribing purposes to animals or even to to natural entities like stones or air, you know, like the the, 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 the stones, that's a famous example, the stones tend to go down, to go uh, to the floor, to the bottom. And that's their, actually, that's their nature. Their nature, a nature for Aristotle is a tendency towards something. So for him, nature was full of purposes. And uh, of course, for, and for him, and in general, the Greek philosophers and the ancient philosophers, it was really not a problem to to say, well, uh, the the, the um, uh, this uh, sorry, this animal is lying there because uh, he fakes being dead in order to trump a predator. Uh, um, possum, I think. Sorry. Sorry, sorry. Go on. Sorry. Yeah, and. Um, in the modern revolution, very generally, I mean, things are more, as always, more complicated, but the basic idea is that uh, science uh, restricted to uh, what one calls efficient causes. So causes uh, where some state of the world determ- determines the next state of the world. Whereas if you talk about purposes, it's like the effect that determines the cause. So, uh, the, the, for example, uh, escaping a predator, which is the effect of changing color, is why the chameleon, cha- the chameleon changes its color uh, to the color of its, its immediate environment. So um, that's, that doesn't fit into the explanatory scheme of the scientific revolution and modern science in general, where causes should come before the effects. And... Um, so what to do with that? Uh, there is a sort of eliminative strategy, which which is let's 
consider that when you, we use purposive statements, like uh, the chameleon uh, tries to expate a predator, the the, the wolf is uh, running after the the uh, the sheep in order to eat it. Those are short. Um, those are uh, formulations that um, uh, that hint towards uh, causal explanations that we cannot formulate because of our limited cognitive abilities. Uh, but ultimately, there are only causes and effects in the world. But uh, it's just that we have to use these metaphorical, anthropocentered, anthropomorphical, uh, purposive language to talk about non-humans because otherwise, but it's, it doesn't, you know, uh, grasp something real in the world. So that's the eliminative strategy. And as many philosophers, I don't think, I don't think it's, uh, it's correct because I think there are ways to make sense first of the purposive statements and second of uh, why those purposive statements are actually necessary in order to make sense of biological uh, events, state of affairs, uh, phenomena. And um, so why is it the case? Uh, actually, the purposive language in biology, it's really all over the place. So it's about functions. Um, mm -hmm. So when I say, uh, when I say the function of uh, the, the, the function of the eyes are, uh, seeing, I'm saying that the eyes are there because they are loom, uh, vertebrate or the animals to see. Um, so the effect of the eyes is really the, uh, reason why the eyes are there. Uh, but also, uh, what we call adaptation is also purposive. So an adaptation means a kind of, it's as if, let's say the, 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 the color of, uh, or the stripes of the zebra are adaptation, uh, in the sense that, that it allows them not to be seen because the predator of the zebras, when, when he sees lots of zebras, actually it's hard for, uh, the, 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 the cheetah or the lion to distinguish where starts and ends an individual zebra and so it confuses the the cheetah uh, so that's an adaptation for a life where the zebra are herbivores living in the savanna with che with cheetahs uh, with cheetahs and lions um, it's purpose i mean it's a purposive statement the stripes are there in order to uh, allow the uh, zebras not to be eaten and also you have purposiveness when you look at embryological processes, which are really crucial for life. So it's very hard to uh, make sense of an embryological process, uh, an egg that develops into, an, let's say, for example, a chicken egg that develops into a chick. It's very hard to make sense of it if you don't say that all the stages of the development are aiming at producing a chick. And so th those are the aspects of purposiveness in a in um, in life and uh, so for example uh, if I consider uh, wolf hunting this is a behavior hunting that is purposive so uh, and purposive means that what the the, the, the wolf does is uh, explained by the presence of uh, or the putative presence of let's say other mammals and uh, it's a uh, 
hunger, which is ultimately related to its need to survive. And um, but then the, the hunt, its uh, purposive behavior also means that sometimes uh, the wolf, uh, actually very often the wolf is hunting, but the goal is not achieved. I mean, the wolf hunts, uh, and the, go- the wolf is hunting even though the wolf doesn't in the end catch the prey. It's still hunting. So uh, purposive behavior can be um, can be can fail actually. It's, a, it's an essential part of the meaning of purposive that the goal might uh, may not be reached. And um, and then there is sort of hierarchical structure. So there's hunting, which is a purposive behavior. Hunting is to get food. Um, all the parts of the uh, well, many of the parts sorry of the wolf have functions that are related to this hunting, clothes, jaws, legs, they are related to, to uh, the capacity for hunting. So that they have functions and the functions are understood in relation to the hunt. And then the hunt is in order to, uh, in order to eat. So actually the, the purpose, the function of the clothes and the jaws and then the behavior, hunting behavior are related to a very general function of the organism, which is eating which is also uh, directed towards surviving. So you have a very general hierarchical uh, scheme of entanglement between functions of parts, general behavior, general function of the organism, hunting, general purpose uh, uh, to surviving. Mm -hmm. Um, So now why... That's something uh, biologists have been, you know, uh, sort of epistemic scheme used by biologists since uh, centuries. Why is Darwinian biology crucial here? Because it makes sense of all those purposive uh, statements. So, for example, um, so, and this is a, an idea that has been uh, developed by philosophers Larry Wright and, uh, and mostly Karen Neander and uh, Ruth Mulliken in, in the 80s. Um, what do I mean when I say the function of the clothes uh, is to catch prey? First, this statement, this statement is uh, explaining the presence of the clothes. So that's the, the, the very general, uh, the, the, let's say, the, 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 uh, this kind of explanation explain the presence of the clothes. That's the first thing. And the, how is it explaining the presence of the clothes? Well, actually, it refers to evolution by natural selection. What does it mean? The cl- think of like, you know, uh, it's also a toy example, but the logics of the explanation is here. Think of a very um, ancestral population of, of uh, wolves and... Uh, and also think in Darwinian terms, meaning things, populations of individuals that are different. That's the basics of Darwinian biology. It's population with individuals that vary, that are different one from another. And so some have clothes, some don't have clothes. The ones that have clothes, they'll be, they'll catch the prey, actually. The ones that don't have clothes, they'll don't catch the prey. So the ones that have the clothes, they will survive and they will reproduce much more than the ones that don't have clothes. So, uh, in the end, uh, because clothes are her- clothes are heritable, wolves, the whole population will have clothes, and uh, that's the so that's the Darwinian explanation. And what am I saying when I, when I say the clothes is uh, the, the the function of the clothes is catching prey? I am saying that 
catching phrase is what made the clause selected by natural selection because it gave a reproductive advantage and survival advantage to the wolves that had clothes. Is it clear? Yeah, yeah. And uh, so some of the epistemic problems with, with this question also arise with the purpose of life. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. So that's yeah. something. So, so, uh, so if, if, so if one agrees with this idea, so I gave the example of functions, but very generally, actually, the, 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 the logics of Darwinian biology allows you to make sense of those purposive statements. And so, uh, so someone could say, okay, all the purposive statements, so the, the, the functions of the parts of the organisms, the, the purposive behavior of so, some animals, uh, you can explain them, you can explain them by natural selection. And natural selection, uh, arises as soon as, um, as you have individuals that, uh, vary, as I said. And uh, their differences are heritable. So let's say, for example, the, uh, if you think about size, heritability means in a population, the, the, the taller, the, the, the tallest ones will tend to have offspring that are taller than the mean. That's what heritability means. And also that, you know, uh, the, those, the, 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 those properties are, uh, gives you an advantage, uh, or, um, uh, can give you an advantage or can be costly in terms of reproduction. So it's the, uh, you'll have natural selection for size as soon as the size makes a difference uh, in the chances of reproductive chances of, of the animals. So that's the logic of natural selection. And then someone could say, okay, so as soon as you have individuals that vary uh, and that, you know, uh, vary heritable variations and those, 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 little variation make a difference in their survival chances, uh, you'll have natural selection and you'll have functions, you'll have proposals, you have uh, behavior like, like hunting behavior. And uh, it's the pure logics of actually natural selection is a, is a causal process. So you don't, you do not, uh, you do not go out the field of causal processes, which, which is uh, like not, let's say, in physics, ultimately. And someone could say, okay, but this is as soon as life exists. But then why is life? Uh, you cannot say life is there because uh, of natural selection, because evolution by natural selection is a property of living individuals. So is there a reason why life is there? Maybe life is there for something and for a purpose. And so, um, and actually lots of the, the, the discussion with people who, uh, let's say people who are somehow religious and who think there is a, some design in life, concentrates upon the question of like uh is there a reason why life originated at the first place before evolution by natural selection and um and what i'm pointing out in the book is that there is an issue with this question which is that uh animals most of the biological categories are were actually quite well defined animals plants uh walls, primates, and so on. And, and most of the time they are well-defined because you can uh, ascribe to them a position in the tree of life, actually. And um, But what about life itself? And, and actually, I think it's very hard to have a sort of uh, definition of what life is uh, and what I think 
of all philosophers and biologists think it's very hard to get a definition of what life is. And if you don't have a definition of what life is, uh, how could you even formulate the question, uh, does life uh, have a purpose? I mean, you can say, do eyes have a purpose? Because you know what eyes, so you can ask the question, you know what, what eyes are. But about life, it's much more difficult. And so I tend to think that the question about the purpose of life, you know, it's a, I'm quite, for many reasons, I'm very, very close to Kant, and that's a Kantian answer, but it doesn't, the question doesn't really make sense, actually. So, um, because you have lots of theories about what life is and no, no way to empirically discriminate between them. And uh, some views are such that, for example, even stock markets will be alive. So that's philosopher Mark, Mark Bedow's, he has a concept of the nature of life, but it entails this very bizarre, um, this very bizarre uh, consequence. Other definitions of life have the consequence that viruses are not alive, which is also problematic for some biology. So, so the, the, what life is, I think it's a, is so, um, just, uh, the definition is so unstable that you cannot even ask the question, is there, what's the reason why life is there? Except in terms of causal processes that, you know, the chemistry uh, of the world before life, we, we make some progresses in that. But the reason why life is there in terms of goal or it doesn't make sense. Purpose. Is it clear? Uh, yeah. And, and you also talk about, well, it's in the next chapter, you talk about uh, explaining the causes of uh, historical events and your example is the first world war and that chapter was uh quite fascinating to me and the main reason was that there were a lot of issue, uh, uh concepts that i wasn't familiar with myself for example um so so you talk about why the first world world war happens and is it based on triggering causes and then you said that this kind of explanation is not adequate and then you talk about David Lewis's idea of modal realism and that's what really interested me because I, I hadn't heard his name before and I wasn't familiar with this uh, modal realism so can you talk about why 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 when we're talking about the causes of historical events say these triggering events triggering causes that lead to that event is not an adequate explanation and what is um, David Lewis's idea of modal realism yeah, so actually I'm, I'm starting with this thing that, that uh, historians are uh, mm. discussing. So there were the, the, the explanation of World War One, and I was struck by the fact that at the same time, uh, you know, in history classes, we are told that it's the uh, assassination of Archduke uh, Franz Joseph uh, Franz Ferdinand yeah. in uh, in uh, 1914 uh, that is the cause of the First World War. And we are also told that the, 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 like situation of Europe, especially with these alliances that made it impossible for like Germany being attacked without Austria replying and so on. So the situation of Europe made it, um, actually very probable that World War, War One would have occurred anyway. I mean, if it hadn't, if it wasn't this like assassination, that triggered the First World War, it would be like something else. So, uh, uh, and so my question is, okay, so is this assassination the explanation or not? 
is it the cause or not and uh, and i i saw that actually have kinds of causes that are quite different and this very question is uh, uh about so the question about the causes of world war 1 the answer will 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 be different if you look at uh what we can say uh what what triggered it uh, given the state of the world, uh, and it will be the assassination of France president. And uh, uh, what was the general background that made it possible? And actually, it was the, the general uh, situation of alliances between the countries in Europe. And this is a difference uh, that Fred Gretzky makes between structural and triggering causes. Uh, and uh, I think it's quite useful. And then why David Lewis? Uh, David Lewis uh, defends what he called modal realism, but but actually what what the, um, what is it uh, and what I am using? So what is it is uh, the very sophisticated uh, realization of an idea that was initially an idea by Leibniz in the 18th century that this is we live in a world, it's the real world, and there are possible worlds. So a world, for example where actually I'm living in Marseille and not in Paris, it's another possible world. And of course, lots of things would be different. So if I were living in Marseille, it wouldn't be the same apartment there. It would not be raining uh, uh, outside and so on. So so there are possible worlds that are let's say, variants of the world as it is. And uh, for uh, Leibniz, that was very important because that would provide him the frame for uh, addressing the question, uh, why is there something rather than nothing? Why is the world like this? And uh, But actually, David Lewis doesn't, uh, and Sal Kripke and uh, uh, Robert Stalnaker, who are the philosopher who worked on those ideas, they don't take the whole of Leibniz, but just a very general idea that there are possible, you can think of possible worlds. Those possible worlds may be more or less different uh, than our world. So a world where, for example, uh, I am, a, let's say, a soldier in Argentina is more different than our world from the world that, that where I'm just a philosopher living in Marseille and the world where you and me are uh, chimpanzees is a world even more different or a world where, let's say, the law of gravitation has another formula, is a world even more different. So the intuitive, intuitive idea is that you can think of possible worlds. Those worlds may be more or less different than the actual world. Uh, and this gen, and Lewis's idea is that in order to make sense of lots of things that are really crucial in our, let's say, in our conceptual scheme, in our ways of thinking and in our language, actually we have to refer to possible worlds. So for example, um, when I deliberate and I think, should I do this? Actually, I'm comparing two possible worlds. The world that, that will uh, derive from me doing A and the world that will derive from me doing B. Those are two possible worlds. And so even deliberating is about thinking of possible worlds. And what, I am, what am I doing when I choose? Actually, I'm saying the possible world that derives from me doing A is better than the possible world that derives from me doing uh, B, so let's do A. Well, I may be wrong, that's not the problem, but the point is that 
deliberating refers to possible world, even implicitly. Um, and uh, so, so that's the general idea. And uh, what's the relation with World War One? Actually, it's very simple. What is an event that is necessary? So, for example, uh, uh, like the the uh, me uh, if I if I uh, drop a stone uh, like in the street from my window, it will fall. That's necessary. What means necessary? It means that in whatever world where there is me, a window, a street, uh, me dropping the stone will, uh, the stone will fall. So, uh, the, the, the necessity has to do with, uh, some necessity has to do with all the world, possible worlds around our world and uh, what goes on in this world. So what does it mean that, um, so for David Lewis, causation is actually causation. The meaning of causation is, um, contained in, in the in the sentence if a hadn't be the case b wouldn't be there so that's a causes b means something like if a hadn't been the case b wouldn't be there uh and so the wouldn't be there it's a conditional statement it refers to possible worlds it so the causation for the uh, causal statements are about what would happen in worlds like us in worlds like alls except regarding uh the thing a that i'm saying is the cause of b what does a causes b means it says in all the worlds that are like alls where it doesn't occur b doesn't occur now i mean it's not so simple because of course what does like ours mean and that's a huge question for philosophers because it's about basically uh, how you compare worlds so how you say this world is more like all so this world let's say is uh, farther away from our world than this other world if you picture yourself a sort of universe of all the worlds so the, the technically it's a question of the matrix the distance how you measure the distance between between worlds but but actually for this question of the uh, explaining world war one what does it mean that um, the, the, the World War One was unavoidable? Uh, it means that uh, in lots of worlds around our world, even in worlds where uh, there is not this assassination of uh, the Archduke in, in Sarajevo, there is still a World War One. So that's the that's where the, the the possible worlds come into play. Is that when I'm saying um, it's uh, the, 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 the World War One was, uh, unavoidable that there are lots of chances that it appeared, etc. This is about the, all the possible worlds in which there is no Sarajevo murder. And in many of those possible worlds, uh, like there is World War One. And so that's, that, uh, that's how you conciliate the idea that, uh, the murder, um, the murder of uh, uh, the, the Archduke in Sarajevo caused the World War One, which means that in some of the worlds around us, you have the mur- you you don't have the murder, and you don't have the World War One, and uh, the uh, almost necessity of World War One, which is if you look a bigger picture and you have lots of worlds around us, 
1914, and in almost all, all of those worlds, you had, you still have the, the World War One. So that's a, a concept, that, that's a, an I, a sort of account of necessity, modality, uh, and what one also what I call inexorability, which is it's not necessary, but it most in most of the worlds, possible world like us, uh, around us, like us, you have an event, and I, I, that's why I call it uh, inexorable. And um, and also Lewis was a modern realist, so he thought that all possible worlds exist. Other philosophers who use possible worlds, like Stonemaker, for example, are not modern realists. Actually, I'm neutral on, the, on that. I mean, I. Uh, I'm not saying other worlds exist. I'm saying we refer to the idea of other worlds in order to make sense of. I mean, each time we talk about causation, explanation, we do explanation, we deliberate, and so on. And uh, talking about causes, uh, you, in your book you go on to talk about conspiracy theories as well. I'm uh, keen to know. I've, I've talked to a number of historians and also historians of science and talked about conspiracy theories. But I rarely ask a philosopher why conspiracy theories are so common. You discuss it in your book, and you also talk about the idea of chance, which helps us understand why conspiracy theories appeal to masses. Can you talk about this, please? Yeah, sure. So actually, I uh, use this. Uh, I talk about conspiracy theories first because that's I've been, I've been working on on this for mm. uh, for some time, and so I'm like a deep interest, and I think that it, it has also an important political interest. But here, uh, actually, lots of my book is about drawing a line between what are the the core, let's say, the correct uh, merging of meanings of why uh, and the incorrect ones. So. Uh, when I, uh, what, so it's in the, I call that in general fusions. It's, so one of the idea of the book, which is something that's not, not very, uh, not very, uh, exceptional in philosophy is that reasons mean several things and like, they mean, they mean the, the justification for beliefs, the reasons for action, the reasons of things or events like the causes or the structural explanations that, uh, as I talked about. And, um, and if one white question asks for one specific kind of reasons, in general, it shouldn't be answered by another one. So, for example, if I am asking why uh, is there a hurricane uh, like in this part of South America now, uh, the explanation is causal processes. And uh, if someone says, well, there is this hurricane because the humans in South America, they were uh, sinners and God decided to punish them. This is not a correct explanation because it refers to goals, purposes, and uh, intentions and that's uh, not what takes place in nature. So, um, so this is a confusion. And uh, conspiracy theories, they are a kind, interesting kind of confusion because uh, most generally they uh, uh, rely on the will to find intentions behind events. And so those intentions uh, conspiracy theories um, concern the specific kind of intentions. They are malevolent intentions and intentions that are part of a group of people and intentions that are hidden, non-public. That's the three characters of the, uh, at the intentions to which conspiracy theorists appeal. And uh, and I was interested in that because for me it's an, an interesting 
confusion between the natural, the causes that, you know, are explanatory uh, of an event and the, uh, the appeal to an intention. And it illustrates also the, the fact that sometimes we are frustrated with the explanation. The natural explanation seems not to make sense uh, of uh, events and phenomena. And uh, so the most common example in the history of philosophy about this confusion between intention and causes, it's religion. So religious people want that things that, appear, that, that occur are not only the result of causes, uh, but the result of God's intentions. And, uh, and lots of philosophers like Spinoza or Nietzsche think that this is a, uh, based on a sort of frustration with, uh, causal explanations and which doesn't, which don't provide meaning. And, um, so what about conspiracy theories, which, is, uh, which are more like, uh, you know, a tinier topic than religion, even though it's, uh, politically, uh, important, uh, so, a conspiracy is the need for an intention uh, in order to explain some phenomena. And why are they so common and so popular? Uh, that's a, that's a, a quite old question. One of the classical papers on conspiracy theory was by historian Richard of Shatter and in uh, 1933 or 4, I think. And, uh, and uh, it's, um, they are, they, they, met, they, they, they really were very popular just after the revolution, French Revolution. So the two books that I don't remember the titles, but I cite, I cite them in the book uh, that uh, talked about the uh, Illuminati, cons Illuminati conspiracy were written actually just after the French Revolution. And uh, one of the uh, explanation of why they, are, why they are so popular is about the loss of order. So if you look at uh, let's say the waves of conspiracy theories. One was just after the French Revolution. One was, uh, actually in, uh, in the wake of the, uh, Russian Revolution. And, uh, one was after the 9-11. And so some historians make the case, and I think they are right, that when an order, so for example, the uh, French Revolution, it was the aristocratic order, uh, the end of the Soviet Union, it was the sort of bipolar order of the Western world. Uh, so when an order, uh, fades away, uh, it's like the meaning of things, the meaning of events tend to disappear. And then in order to give meaning, people are, uh, very much attracted by theories that tell them that the things have a meaning in terms of an intention of hidden groups of people. And that's why one explanation. And something that makes conspiracy theories attractive is, um, trying to say uh, in the book, is our sort of reluctance to one kind of explanations, which is actually, which, which leaves some room to chance. Uh, and so it is, so, so uh, what does it mean? First, the, I tried to cash out the notion of chance, and actually it's not, it's not so easy because chance ties together two ideas. The first one is that, um, uh, for example, uh, I, um, 
I meet you uh, like in the market where uh, I didn't expect to see you because I didn't know you go into the same market. Actually, the meeting you is like uh, someone could say it's a perfectly deterministic event. Given my intentions, your intentions, the way the world is, uh, I had to be in the market at the same time as uh, the time you had to be there. So, of course, we would meet. Uh, but uh, because none of us had the intention of meeting the other, we talk about chance. So one aspect of chance is the lack of intention. Another aspect of chance, which is quite different actually, is uh, suppose I um, toss a coin, and the coin uh, uh, lands on um, uh, the can. The, sorry, the coin lands on uh, uh, one side. Sorry. Mm -hmm. just the coin lands tail and you would we, one would say okay that's by chance I mean and but what does it mean here chance it means the chances of heads and tails were the same so chance here has to do with equal probability so uh, the word chance actually is uh, unstable because it tends to mean Equiprobability, equal probability, and it also tends to mean lack of intention. And those two things has, are very different, actually. So the very concept of chance is unstable, and I think uh, that make also uh, explanation that at some point, and well, this is also by chance, uh, sometimes hard to accept while they have to be accepted because actually lots of events are such that there is there are no intention behind them and lots of events also are such that actually the you know like one one or the other configuration was uh, almost equally probable and um so so and also something else is that uh we we it's hard in general for, for many people to think that very meaningful events, uh, like, you know, the life of, La of Lady Diana, for example, can, uh, be there out of pure chance. In the same, in the sense of, for example, uh, uh, events that are, uh, like poorly. Yeah, sorry, I, there's another meaning of chance, which is things that happen and that were weakly, like, that had, that had a low probability. And so, uh if an event is very meaningful like the assassination of uh John Kennedy or like the it's hard to say well it's not uh, uh it's not pure chance you know of um, a plane crash or uh where someone very important was there and uh, um i'm trying to 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 well there there are some examples like like, like this yeah but uh, so uh lady diana yeah see was a car accident and some people say she was so important it shouldn't be a car accident so it's a dissymmetry between the uh like political or moral significance of an event and the chance explanation which is like without meaning that makes some uh conspiracy theory quite um attractive to people even though the very word conspiracy theory is uh, I'm not a fan of using it too much because I think uh, it's hard to think of conspiracy theories without a political context. So, for example, 
uh, if I read uh, in the, like the New York Times that this this um, uh, let's say let's imagine the prime minister of uh, a country had a car a country that was about to go to war. No, sorry, that's a bad example. Okay, let's say if a, a politician that was an opponent to the president died in a car accident, if I read it in the New York Times, it would be irrational to say, no, he's been killed, it's a conspiracy. But it, if I am a like North Korean citizen and I read in the newspaper that the only opponent of the uh, Kim Jong-un died in a car accident, it's quite rational, actually, to think that it was a conspiracy, you see? So, uh, because, you know, of what we know of North Korea and the fact that actually no newspaper there is very reliable, there is no real uh, freedom of information. Uh, what thinking of conspiracies, uh, conspiracies, groups of conspirators is is not irrational. So there is a definition of conspiracy theory, which is uh, a conspiracy theory is a consp- uh, is a theory that uh, appeals in a non-necessary manner to um, a group of malevolent people uh, acting in secret, and this the, the word non necessary is, is, is the definition is due to, to is uh, is by uh, David Aronovich, a French, uh, an English writer. But that's useful. But then, what does non necessary mean? And uh, my point is that if you are a North Korean citizen, uh, uh, a non necessary appeal to a group of conspirator. Uh, well, it might be very necessary given your, the, what is the, what is the kind of state you live in. Whereas if you are, uh, Western and, uh, American, Australian citizen, well, hopefully it's, in my example, it's not necessary to appeal to a group of conspirators. So uh, the point is that it's the, the world conspiracy theory without the context where you use it. I mean, who, who talks of conspiration in which country? What's the political regime? Uh, it's not um, it's not really uh, meaningful. Uh, b- before we come to the end of this conversation, I'm uh, curious to know if there is any other book or project you are currently working on. Yeah, well, actually there are several projects, but uh, uh, one is a very academic book on the, 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 this question of structural explanation, but it's really intended. Uh, um, to towards uh, like professional philosophers. Another one is uh, actually I've been working on uh, a book that p- was published there. Hopefully, it will be published in uh, uh, in English. It's called uh, well, the Les Sociétés du Profilage. I mean, there's profiling societies where I'm uh, looking at how uh, the gathering of lots of data about people through a lot of numerical digital channels allows uh, fine-grained predictions of the uh, like the, the, the behavior of people or the beliefs of people and uh, also act upon the beliefs of people like in the case of Cambridge Analytica the scandal in the about the brexit and uh, what what kind of political uh, governance uh, like what kind of political setting is uh, is is produced uh, by that and and so and my other projects are more technical things about philosophy of ecology about what's an ecosystem mm. and uh, yeah so that's uh, in general what I'm doing. Right, uh, Professor Philip Muman, thank you very very much for your time to talk to us about your book. I strongly recommend this book to our listeners.
uh, it's, uh, you, you have a lot of good relevant examples, which makes the, makes the really difficult concepts more and more accessible to, uh, to a lay audience. Thank you very much for your time. Well, thanks to you. Thanks. Thank you very much for your interest and your attention and, uh, and the podcast. That, that, that was great.